0: Okay, so on the last episode of Above Board, we started talking about how we spend money and when we spend money. And we even got into an area where we spoke about how Paul considered investing $50,000 or more into the business. And it's funny because we started talking about the privilege that we had or the, and the, the fact that Paul could actually do that in the first place. And it made us realize that not everyone has this opportunity to do something like that. No one has money laying around that they can invest in their business. And I think as Above Borders progressed, we've slowly moved from this Funding is bad, or at least for me. Paul you were ne- perhaps never there, but I was always funding is bad. But it depends on the person, and it depends on the circumstances. So the natural progression got us to the point where it made sense to bring Rob Balling on, the founder of Tiny Seed Drip. You've heard of him; everyone knows Rob Balling at this point. And uh, to just talk about different funding and things like that. So we're going to get into a bunch of stuff, and I'm excited for this, Rob. So thanks for being here.
1: Absolutely, it's my pleasure.
0: So we'll kick off and we all know what venture capital is. Uh, and I'm hoping you can explain to the people that aren't aware what is an accelerator
1: like Tiny Seed. Sure, an accelerator is it started with Y Combinator, Paul Graham in 2005 or 6 and he wanted to basically almost go against the traditional venture capital model where they write big checks and they i would say traditionally historically have taken advantage of founders and eventually usually kick the founder out at a certain point that doesn't happen as much anymore but he basically wanted to run it like grad school because he had gotten, I believe he had two PhDs, one in art and one in math. And he loved that model of having a cohort and having batches of company, you know, batches of founders together. And so, uh, that's that's how it started. So, most accelerators are three months long. And most of them, the goal is get that pitch deck together and raise the funding at the end of the, you know, at the end of the three months and a lot of i have a lot of friends who've gone through yc actually my co-founder with tinyseed went through y combinator in 2009 uh, in the same batches as, as airbnb and so for me having been like trying to help founders help entrepreneurs through you know all the stuff i've done for 15 17 years whatever when i started thinking about what's how can i help them even more it's like we create free content we run events we you know do, uh, do all that stuff. And I started realizing I was writing, you know, checks, um, personally investing in them, but eventually I kind of ran out of, ran out of funds to do that. And, um, in essence decided to start an accelerator, but we did it differently, right? It's a year long because, and, and the goal is not to raise a funding at the end. It's to have a batch of ambitious SaaS founders who are trying to get off the ground and trying to grow their company faster.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Y Combinator is interesting for sure with the whole the pitch deck and pitching to the people that come. It's uh, and VC in general is just is just odd. So it's nice to see that there are actually accelerators out there. So you were brought to start Tiny Seed because you were enjoying the investment. Um, what what is the difference between Tiny Seed and a company like uh, like well Y Combinator is obviously an accelerator, but Kosla uh, Ventures I think is a VC company? Oh.
1: Sequoia, what are those, the differences? Right? Anderson Horowitz, Yeah.
0: So how are you different from those for people that don't understand?
1: Yeah. So we, uh, a lot of ways, actually, we we still raise a fund just like they do. So mechanically, it's the same thing. We are technically a venture fund and we register with the SEC. Everything else is different <laughs> it, from we are willing to invest in early stage SaaS companies that really still want that kind of bootstrap mentality that they don't want to go big or go home. They don't want to go after the unicorn exit. Our companies, we say, if you want to get to seven figures or eight figures in annual revenue, so millions or tens of millions, that's a great fit. And that can be life-changing for you and us. And some folks may want to run, you know, th- with venture capital, you need to IPO or sell in seven to 10 years. That's the like that the fund. With us, <laughs> we, we fund LLCs and C-Corps, which uh, most, you know, VCs only fund C-Corps because it's all about the exit, blah, blah, blah. Vers- and, and we fund LLCs and C-Corps. So some of our folks will um, run it for the long term, in essence, and run a build a profitable business, take our funding, never raise another round. It's their choice. Um, I think about a third of our tiny C companies have gone on to raise additional funding but it's been their choice and they come to us and say hey you know we want to do this and so the other thing with venture friends is they write a check and then they like have a board and they can have some clauses in there that might be a little tricky hey maybe we can veto and exit you know so you can't sell um, or maybe uh, there's just a lot of clauses in there and they don't they don't do the program like we are literally we are the funding then we have this this list of mentors tinyc.com/people and you can see it, Jason Fried and Heaton Shaw and Lars Lofgren. You know, just it's like a laundry list of like SaaS who's who. And then we have this batch, and we have weekly meetings. We're running a whole program for a year that is nothing. It's totally different than you know than if you took a check from a traditional angel or a traditional VC.
0: Okay, then. So, what? Who are the kind of people that come to you then? Like personality traits, or is it about? they're missing something so they come to you to fill in the gap or is it that they they want to remove the risk because i see people like ruben gomez and derek rima like these are top quality entrepreneurs and they're still coming to you and in my head i'm thinking well they can fund themselves so why would they then work with so- tiny seed when they could just stay kind of independent if
1: you yeah like. totally and that's that's a great question because taking money from tiny seed y- you're still independent I mean, we we take a, a minority share. We don't have control. We don't tell people what to do. We don't force people to do anything, you know, yeah. except for, hey, can you send us a monthly update on your revenue or something? And uh, what we found is that people come to us for a few reasons. W- initially, we thought, well, people are going to come for the funding. It's the money. Yeah. And that's like 20, 25% of, of anyone in a given batch is like, I really need this money to quit my day job, or I really need this money to hire, you know, a dev or a marketer. Three quarters... Uh, of them are like Ruben and Derek and we had a we had a company come in our third batch with a hundred thousand mrR they're at 1.2 million and they said but we've kind of stumbled into this we don't know what we're doing y- you are experts like we know that you plus your mentors you know that the tiny c team plus mentors can help us know what we don't know and help us get this going so mo- more of it is guidance mentorship and even the the batch aspect of it of being around 10 20 30 other ambitious uh, SaaS founders who aren't ambitious asshole, you know, Silicon Valley types. I don't want to paint a big brush. I grew up in the Bay Area. I don't live there anymore. I live in Minneapolis now. But I- I've been around the tech bros. And that's not my scene. And that's not the tiny seed scene. You know, most people are, it's like the micro, you know, comp startups, restless Most of us are a little older. Most of us are married or have a life partner. A lot of us have kids. A lot of us have a mortgage. That's not the traditional, you know, I, I think that the model or the stereotypical VC back founder and not the stereotypical YC founder. That would be the early twenties, like got nothing to lose, you know, and just willing to crank on it.
0: So it's like a sustainable funding model, which is quite interesting. It's not boom or bust, go big or go home where you're just, I don't care if you fail, you actually care about the companies, which is interesting. Um, I'm, I'm curious as we kind of, you know, I said before we started the call, I wanted to cover a few areas. Um, what do you see as being the typical thing that founders are missing when they come to you that you have to help sharpen? Is it bad marketing or lack of marketing knowledge? Like, What is it?
1: So it depends. If it's a technical or two technical co-founders, then usually they're <laughs> leaning, you know, and hey, I'm a, I'm a developer too, right? I haven't written code in a couple of years now, but I still hack PHP on the weekends every now and again. Um, so I, I get it, but we get a lot of folks who've like acc- accidental, 10K, 20K a month, two devs, you know? And they're like, we don't know where to go from here, right? So for those guys, obviously, those guys and gals, obviously it's like, well, let's help you get some, either hire a marketer or um, hire an agency. And of course we have connections there. Um, and then there are folks who come in who are non-technical. I think there's about 15%, maybe 20% are either one or two people and neither is a developer. And so for them, they need more help on the hiring devs and structuring. And that the cool part there is since they're kind of in the minority in the batch, there's a lot of I don't have to do much mentoring. It's literally the rest of the batch. You know, they're like, "What should I do here?" And everyone else knows. Well, you want a Kanban board, and you want to use the Agile methodology. You know, or whatever it is. Like, there's a lot of coaching available um, around that. But I'd say the biggest problem, I think, for everyone always winds up: we need more leads. You know, we want more customers. We want more traffic.
0: Yeah. Okay. Fine. So yeah, that, that makes complete sense. And like, as I'm thinking about. what they're missing. I'm also thinking who is, who would be a bad fit for funding? So me and Paul would be a a poor Mm -hmm. fit because we were aware of ourselves. We're aware of what we need and don't need. Um, and like, you know, Paul's book was about questioning growth and and that kind Mm -hmm. of thing. Who's a bad fit for something like tiny seed, you know, the independent funding.
1: Yeah. I I mean, I can speak to funding in general. I think that if you have a true lifestyle business. And I've run many of those that are these amazing five or six figure a year incomes. And I was working 10 hours a week for like eight, (laughs) nine months making 150 K like that's a fucking great business, you know? And, and if you have one of those, um, this is probably not, don't, don't ruin that. You know, don't ruin it until you get bored. What happened with me is I did it and then I got bored and then I was like, I want to do something more ambitious and that's my personality, but not everybody wants to do that. So I think if, um, if you, if you don't want to focus on the business and you maybe have two or three, four or five things that you do, Hey, I want all these little products and stuff. Probably you you kind of, if you take funding, you kind of need to focus, you know, it's not that you can't have hobbies, but you do need to focus on one thing. If you're spending 20 hours on this and then 10 hours on this and then 10 hours on that during your week, that's not, I would say that's, unless you have prior agreement, you know, with investors, most investors are not going to be cool with that. Um, And then I think some businesses just aren't, That fundable like info products and courses don't tend to be you know (laughs) because they don't scale up right it's it's hard it's possible it's really hard to build a seven or eight figure info product course business it's hard some businesses are like hey I have a Shopify app or I have a WordPress plugin and like unless you have a lot of them like one WordPress plugin very unlikely you know to to get to seven or eight figures Um, so I think I think those are ones what I was I think the typical thing is folks often think well. People who don't want to give up control, right, or don't want to have a boss as an investor, yeah. and it's like that's not what we do. I mean, we have we have people who are in tiny seed and we're like, look, everything's pretty much optional, and so you can show up for the meetings or the not, you know, the calls with the mentors or not. We're not going to be hovering over your shoulder. Um, so it's not as if we are like you know on people's backs. And you could tie, you know, Reuben and Derek and you know any anybody else you know. Um, the initial conversations with them where it was like, Hey, have you thought about taking funding? Like Derek did it a little, to de-risk a little bit, right? Cause he had money in the bank, but he's like, but I could take money from you and then spend that instead. <laughs> like yeah. what, you know, what, what's the downside? And I was like, well, downside is, you know, you're gonna, you're selling equity and that's about it. I'm still going to give you the same advice. You know, he's a longtime friend of mine, right? Still going to give you the same advice I would otherwise, but we'll, we can connect you with mentors and all that. Um, so it's. I'm glad it's worked out that way. That was the initial vision, right? It's three years ago. Tiny seed was just an idea I'd had back in 2011, 2012, and I was like, "Can this even work? Will bootstrappers take money? I mean, we still. It's like bootstrapper, mostly bootstrap founders is still what we call tiny seed folks. You know, I don't think of them as funded. It's it's this continuum.
0: It's very different. And, you know, there's a lot of talk on Twitter, a lot of fights on Twitter over this whole this bootstrap business thing. And like, to me, it's always, you know, we're a bootstrap business. It's showing what can be done without taking venture capital. I mean, to me, I view TinySeed as your effectively top level consultants. And you're getting a percentage of the business almost because like, you're bringing this expertise to the table. And as you've described, Tinyseed, it doesn't sound like you know, boom and bust, that kind of thing. It is just sustainable. So it's almost as if you're bringing on another co-founder, but obviously not with the same level of equity. So it is it's definitely an interesting model.
2: Yeah, I guess the only thing I'm really curious about is: has anything changed uh, in Tiny Seed in terms of your your vision of it, your your philosophy for it, from prior to you starting it to hmm. going through a bunch of batches now and, and having some expertise?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question, and the answer is yes. Um, we've we've officially funded 59 companies so far through tiny seed and we're about to do another we're running two batches one is in europe and one will be in the americas and that'll be another 25 ish so we'll, i mean that we'll fund those in the next 60 90 days so we're gonna we we'll gonna be approaching 100 you know over 80 for sure and i a few things definitely changed the initial hypothesis was Founders need money to quit the day job and people working part-time you know can take the money and quit the day job and it's salary for a year right because it's 120 thousand for one founder 180 for two and 220 for three and that quickly became not a reality of in terms of a lot of folks approach this and they're like, look, I'm already making 8K a month, 10k a month. I'm already full-time on the business but I want this to grow I want this to hire I want this to put into ads I want it and I want it. And then your guidance on how to spend it. You know, we get that a lot, right? Hey, I have 180 grand between the two. What do we do with this money that, that you know, we're already break even, ra- not even ramen, we're defaults alive, right? We have all of our expenses done. Now, what do we do? And so that's part of it. I didn't know that upfront. Um, I'm trying to think of anything. I mean, we've changed stuff about the program itself. You know, originally we do a 12 month program because just SaaS takes forever. And I don't think you can get much done in three months aside from a pitch deck, right? <laughs> I just don't believe like philosophically that that's that helpful versus 12 months of like hey let's really you know get you on your feet. We've had folks come in with 800 dollar MRR and leave with 20 25,000. You know, those are like really cool success stories and we've had other people come in at I think somebody came in at 14k and left at like 85k. Like those are and you can't do that in 3 months. You know, we want to really help them through it. Um I I am glad that the philosophy like the the philosophy was and the big bet was will bootstrappers take money at all you know it, will this make sense and can we find terms where this makes sense right because we can't we can't fund on the same terms as YC because YC has unicorns and the moment they do that they have, you know Dropbox and Airbnb it's like yeah, they they are made in the shade. We will probably, I would guess, never have a unicorn. You know, we'll have a bunch of 10, 20, $30 million exits. Which, hey, those are life-changing for the founders, mm. and those provide amazing returns for us. But as a result, you know, we didn't know if we could arrive at terms that would, that would make sense. Um, yeah, that's about it.
2: What's the, I guess, do, do you see any um, similarities in the before and after? Uh, as far as the folks who go through the program? Like, is there something that seems to happen more often than not prior to being in Tiny Seed and then after finishing the 12 months Mm -hmm. of Tiny Seed? Yes, definitely.
1: So, we have this thing called the Tiny Seed Playbook, which I haven't even mentioned on this, but it's seven weeks, one call a week, and it is like everything my co-founder and I know about building and growing SaaS companies. And we don't release it publicly. I mean, it's like some semi-proprietary. It's not a super secret, but it's it, there's a lot in there. And so we cover hiring philosophy. We cover pricing. We cover uh, sales. We cover funnels, lead gen, MA If you decide to sell, we cover fundraising. If you decide to, you know, it's optional, but we talk in depth about how to do that. Some of the most impactful things I think are the hiring and the pricing and usually about half the batch winds up raising their prices within the first 60 days 60 to 90 days it's a lot because we all undercharge our stuff we we build it and we think eh, kind of anyone can build it because we built it and blah 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 but it's like no you <laughs> you're really valuable you know you we had someone who was uh, talking to it was like target or CVS as a customer and they build a dev, they have a dev tool and so you can imagine how many devs there are at target or CVS <laughs> And they were going to charge them, you know, two hundred fifty dollars a month or five hundred a month because they're like, well, it's a lot more than my. And we're like, no, 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 just wow. this. It's gonna be so painful to do this sale. Like, it's gonna take months. You have minimum is twenty five grand a year minimum, and probably closer to fifty, you know, for that level. So, pricing is a big thing, and then hiring, I think, is another one. And we talk about not only the philosophy of it, but like here are some here are some shortcuts to it. Here's some do's and don'ts. Here's some real common missteps that a lot of people make. And so, I think. I think a lot of Tiny Seed founders, they wind up making their first hire um, while they're in Tiny Seed. And then they wind up leaving with two, three, four, you know, team members if they've had the growth. And I think that's a kind of a cool... It's cool to see someone going from, you know, first you build a product, then you build a business, then you build a company, right? These are these three stages I, I t- sometimes talk about. And it's cool to see p- a lot of people come in with a product and leave with a business, you know? that That's just such a f- more formalized and I think more mature... Um, entity.
2: What do you look for in investors? Because Tiny Seed isn't just you doing the investing, right? Yeah. Yeah. What do you, what do you look for, uh, for those types of folks?
1: We have almost all of our investors are founders or former founders. And that's unusual, right? Most venture funds get, you know, big, uh, not private equity. They get um, family offices or they get big endowments and, we would definitely have a conversation we're also too early to talk to them but like i'm not sure how well that's going to be a fit for us long term because the investors who have been founders and have been in the trenches a make amazing mentors so even our we have official mentors on the mentor page and then our whole investor network is essentially mentors who you know can, can come in as needed the other thing is, they have empathy for the the bootstrappers. Most of them were bootstrap or mostly bootstrap founders. Um, it's not that we would exclude someone who raised funding or anything, but they definitely they see the mission of what Tiny Seed's trying to do, which is to you know dramatically increase the number of independent SaaS founders in the world. And they, they get behind it. And then other folks want exposure to a new asset class. Cause that's, I, I, I truly believe like early stage B2B SaaS. I've put a bunch of money into it because I don't like having a bunch of money in public markets, right? I have about a third, we have about a third of our net worth in public equities. Everything else is private, whether it's collectibles or, um, uh, well, I have some crypto. And then of course, B2B SaaS, I think it's a great investment. And, um, we actually, we have a syndicate, which is kind of cool. I don't know if you guys know what that is, but it's like a just-in-time fund that can couldn't crank up uh, at any time to do um, deals that are outside of the accelerator. So we fund both in the accelerator, but also folks who are maybe further along or tiny seed companies raising follow-on funding that's done through this, uh, this tiny seed syndicate.
2: Interesting. I think that's why I got into investing and becoming an LP in funds as well is because I wanted to diversify my assets mm-hmm. i don't know i don't own any art or what is it called masterworks or whatever mm-hmm. it is. yep but yeah i don't i also don't feel like it's smart to just have all of your money in in public uh, in index funds basically yep. so that's why that's why i initially got into it and it's interesting Yep. i feel like it's it's smart to do passive investing but it's also boring like i don't mm-hmm. check i don't check where my investments are <laughs> every mm-hmm. day but it's also boring, so yeah. yeah, That's why I got into it as well, is because I wanted uh, something that was a bit more interesting and something that was a bit more diversified, not
1: correlated as, as correlated to public markets. If, exactly. Look, we all. I thought Bitcoin and Ether were not correlated to public markets in the last two months. It's like, <laughs> eh, it's all going down, you know. Yep. I still, yep. I don't regret owning it, but yeah, I, I agree. I also think it's helpful. You know, Warren Buffett talks about the the luxury of not knowing how much something is worth every day like when you're in stocks like oh my god it just went up should i sell oh my god it just went down Mm -hmm. you put you put whatever 50k 100k into a startup or into a startup fund or a syndicate or whatever you just you don't think about it every day and you're right it's boring it's passive and you don't hear about it unless there's another fundraise or unless it exits and i think i want some assets like that that i'm not tracking every day you know and not seeing the the blood red um dow you know just dropping not dao but dow jones Industrial, you know just plummeting and it's like oh should should i sell should i not i just don't think about that with my startup investments
0: yeah this uh the the whole topic of, of indy funds tiny seed it's making me realize that these funds are effectively vehicles me as a founder, I need to go somewhere and I don't know how to get there. And I've got all this expertise. The trade-off is that I give away some equity, but I get all of this expertise in exchange. Um, it's not the money. You know, I mean, if we if we at Fathom were to do that, it's not about the money, right? It'd be about expertise. You know, and I think about us, if we wanted to go heavily into enterprise sales, we don't because it's Hell no. For me and Paul, we don't want to do that. Uh, it may change in the future. Who knows? But there are a lot of people that want to ramp up enterprise, but they haven't got a clue. Um, and I know that Tuple have been smashing enterprise sales. I know Ben's been smashing that, but I guarantee there are people at TinySeed who, who've done enterprise sales lots and can actually help you fill in that gap. So it is really filling in that gap where someone needs to go somewhere. It's like a vehicle. And I do, I just, I do think it's, it's
1: really interesting. Yeah. That's a cool analogy. I hadn't thought of it like that before, but yeah, enterprise sales is one and it, it's all types, right? It's hiring or it's more, a lot of folks, it's just like, we've gotten some traffic from XYZ source. That's our one source got us 10 K. What do we do next? How do we even look for additional traffic? So, you know, it's just like marketing strategy and then marketing implementation. I mean, that's, that's a big one too.
0: Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I think I was talking to, we talked to Brian Castle, I think uh, the episode before last, and we're talking about awareness. And to me, marketing is so easy. It's, it's in our dna of our company awareness is easy like it's it's just not to some people they wouldn't even know where to start and so i think oh well, cool a fund could literally teach you what you need to do give you strategies and you would get somewhere perhaps in six months that might have taken you however long to actually learn so you're learning from people that are experienced
1: and that's where i do draw the analogy to i guess well it's like if you're gonna if you're gonna look for that expertise. Go to a fund with the expertise, because there are a lot of funds and a lot of accelerators out there. I mean, there are a lot of local accelerators, we have folks who come to tiny seed who have already done maybe a local accelerator in their city. And Usually they say, I, did, I didn't get much out of it. It wasn't a great experience because they don't really know what they're doing. They've kind of, you know, done the model of, hey, we're going to start an accelerator and the city government gave us money or whatever, or the state, but they don't have the experts to help them. And so maybe they get some funding, but, you know, it, it's lacking there. And I was going to draw an analogy to like, you know, they say, if you're going to gonna go to an MBA, like you should only go to one of the top 10 schools or something like that. I, I kind of feel similar about accelerators or about taking money. But I, I don't know if that, I don't know if that analogy actually works, because a lot of it's, I mean, I guess there is the, there's reputation, but then there's also the, um, the network and the people who are there, right? It's your, when you go to Harvard, look, I went to public school <laughs> all through, all through college. So I'm not saying, uh, uh, you know, people should should go to these expensive things, but I, I think like going to Y Combinator, I think it's probably still worth it. I think going to the 10th tier accelerator and or the fifth tier or whatever, like it, I, you know, I don't know. I guess if you need the money, it's there. But there, are, um, there are only so many people who really know this stuff. You know, who really know SaaS and who really know whatever, whatever it is your startups doing.
0: And and I want to close off the, the talk about funding with the only thing, the only time where I've been curious about funding up until now has been. So imagine you've got a business. Imagine it's doing millions of dollars in MRR. Imagine that you own a hundred percent of that. Uh, like at some point. It, you'd want to do a secondary? Like perhaps not. And I've had some interesting discussions with some people that are in this position or close to this position. And their argument is, um, oh, you, you know, you've got the revenue coming in anyway. Just take it as dividends. You're going to be fine. You can diversify that way and invest. What do you think about secondaries? And can you explain what a secondary is to people that aren't familiar with a secondary?
1: Yes. Secondary is when, as you said, one, two, three founders owns 100% of the equity and they want to sell a piece of that And take the money into their personal bank accounts, they're literally selling their shares in a company, much like I might sell my shares in Apple or Tesla. And so it's, it's not funding per se, right? Funding goes into the company for growth, versus a secondary round is where a founder sells half a million, a million dollars, and it takes it diversifies takes risks off the table. For, for context, we didn't go into it, but like I bootstrapped every business up until tiny seed. So I, and I, but I didn't, I, the, with the last one drip, I actually wished that I had been able to raise a small round and I wished I had been able to sell funding or to drip was bootstrapped. Second. You totally. didn't take funding. No, I didn't and I, know that. I wished I had, it would have made it way easier. I mean, that was part of the, I wish tiny seed was around. You know what I mean? Like I wished that yeah, I had been able yeah. to do it. It was just so stressful. Um, secondary. And I also wish, I mean, one of the reasons we sold was, I was like, okay, so here I am, multi-millionaire, and it could go to zero tomorrow. I didn't feel comfortable <laughs> yeah, for my wrist. Yeah, I wished sure. I could have sold half, if I could have sold half a million in secondary, I totally would have done it. So I'm bullish on secondary. In fact, our syndicate, one of the reasons we have a couple founders who want to do secondary, and the syndicate will allow them to do that. They can go, you know, raise money and put it into their their pocket. For me, you know, having a quarter million or half million dollars in the bank is... Not enough money. You never have to work again, but it is life changing. The amount of um, stress that goes away, the amount of comfort that I think that can give you of like knowing that, huh? Even if this goes south, like I got something out of this. You can of course take dividends, which you pay income tax on, hmm. and then slow the growth. It slows the growth of your company, which you may be okay with. But if you sell secondary, you pay long term cap gains on it. You know, which is usually fifteen percent. It depends if you sell. Enough. I think if you sell over a million, it's twenty percent and you do give up some equity but you don't uh slow the growth of the company right you can you can continue sure. investing yeah. in it so there's trade offs for sure now you have um sh- other shareholders so it is like raising funding but if you do it with the right people the right shareholders i think it's to me it's a no brainer it's all about bloody tax
0: isn't it you know the capital gains compared to the income tax it's significant Terrible. at that scale i did yeah. not know that drip was fully uh, fully bootstrapped um I had absolutely no idea. I honestly thought you took a round of funding. That's, and Drip was a big company. (laughs) I don't (laughs) wear that as a badge
1: of honor either. I kind of like, I kept telling Derek, like, I mean, we would talk about it. Should we raise funding? Should we raise, like, I want to raise an angel round. I want to raise like 500. (laughs) We we were never going to, it was never going to be the VC track because neither he or I wanted to do that. But it was, there were just moments where it was like, well, I don't know if I can make, make payroll next month. I don't know if I, um, can fund like our AWS bill. I don't, you know, it was just, everything was constrained by lack of funding because we were growing, MRR was going really fast, but it's just, it's a tough competitive space. And I could have done a lot more with a few hundred grand in the bank.
0: Yeah, that's intense. I can't, yeah, I can't even, I can't, it's going to be interesting to see where we're at in the future because we we spend in a very particular way um, where we are keeping money. We're not, we're not hiring as soon as we, kind of can hire or just before i know we do our projections in a really funny way where it's not on a percentage it's done on a fixed cost so we're being pessimistic but still optimistic i mean google analytics got banned in the eu effectively banned in the eu last month so our growth has just i think tripled or quadrupled and we're already growing well so you just can't measure everything but at the same time things can happen so it goes down and that kind of thing um so yeah we'll close up funding i definitely want to move towards SaaS and Someone messaged me the other day, and they asked me, you know, how do you deal with people ripping off your work? And I know you've mentioned this on your podcast before. I wanted to ask you, how do you manage your psychology and how's it changed with regards to people completely shamelessly ripping you off? So not just competition, which is fair game, people that literally rip you off. How has your psychology changed? And where are
1: you with that now? It always, it always gets you. Um, I so my psychology has changed in that I used to let it bother me more, and now I shrug it off. I to be honest, this the statement is my phrase is everything that I've ever done that was worth doing has been shamelessly ripped off by at least one other person, and often more. Um, and that's if you go into it with that expectation, it stings slightly less. It a month does not go by where I'm not talking to a founder and telling them this because it's just so common, whether someone's ripping off your, your features, your positioning, your copy, your whatever else it is. And, and the worst is not only when they do it, but then if they do it and then they're, public about claiming that they came up with it that's where it really gets you you're like but wait but we spent like three months building like we came up with the idea and the naming and you took it all and now you act like this is crazy right so we almost have to it's like i have to laugh uh so i don't cry and then the other thing is uh old fashions i drink a lot of old fashions and that helps me not feel the pain (laughs) (laughs)
0: Right. Okay. So literally your your mindset is just acceptance of it and just keep moving forward, focusing on the right things. That's your response basically.
1: Yeah. And in most cases, in in probably 90%, uh, maybe even more than that, the person ripping you off is not actually that good or creative and they are just a fast follower and you will stay ahead of them there are edge cases where that's not the case and they start to overtake you or they actually do better and that that's when it gets really hard is when you start losing to what is a copycat and it and it happens but it's business no one like jordan gall he always says he's like no one cares that your competitors have more money than you. You care. No one else cares. Like it's you, this is business, you know? And yeah. if you get into it like this, I I always, I, business is too personal for me. And I'm, I been a life journey for me to like depersonalize it. If that makes sense. Like to make my business less tied to my own happiness and psychology. And to almost think a little bit more like it, Hey, it's a game and I can lose a game and not have a really, um, you know, negative, negative, self outlook right or not have like a terrible week because i lost that that game of um you know of trogdor or whatever we were playing so i'm almost trying to separate myself from that it's hard mrr winds up being your your correlating directly with your happiness which is not great And and it bothers me.
0: More, it doesn't bother me anymore as much. But uh, Paul's been doing this for pretty similar time to you, and he's he's sixty three now, whereas I'm twenty eight. So I'm fresher, <laughs> and it, it did one true. Up, <laughs> it's constant, Rob. It's constant. But my age. So it bothered me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it didn't bother Paul. Paul's been ripped off. His design work's been ripped off. He's used to it, but it did bother me. And the oh, thing yeah. you say about the separation of it's not personal, like that's an empowering thought. So I think that's just a, a really a useful mindset. I'm, I'm going to ask you a specific question and, and feel free not to answer this because um, I know I appreciate it's like mentoring stuff. Imagine that you've got a good business. So you're running something and then a kind of cheap, like you know it's bad. And as, a, as an example, a mutual friend of all three of us, a cheap Uh, budget, poorly done, competitor comes in, copies your positioning, copies everything, and just, it's just rubbish. How do you position against that? Or do you just go back to that mindset of let's focus on the customer, that focus on the product and keep moving it forward?
1: Yes. The second one. I mean, the bottom line is, the bottom line is most customers won't notice, won't take notice, right? That's the thing. That stings though. That stings a lot. It does. Yeah. <laughs> it really does. And it, I, there's no easy answer here. There's no silver bullet. It yeah. it will hurt every time and everything I've ever done that has been successful or worth it has been blatantly copied. I just I just come back to that. It's gonna it's not when it's it's not if it's when. And so what do you do then, right? You keep Innovating, you keep building the features, you keep pushing it forward, and um, you try not to lose. Because if you lose, it stings worse. And I've had a few of those.
0: I like that. That's good advice. It's no, yeah, just accept it. Like Use it, it as
1: motivation, that. right? Yeah, I like it. And then talk a bunch of smack about them behind their back. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't know. It depends. In all <laughs> no, the Slack sure. private founder Slack groups you're in, you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's true, groups. though. That helps blow off steam. It Doing totally that. doesn't. The,
0: the people behind the scenes know, like, the bit being yeah. copying you, and it, it does, yeah.
1: yeah. I have definitely done anonymous um, on my podcast, uh, Startups for the Rest of Us. I've, you know, I'll do my my rant episodes, which are just my thoughts about framework and this and that, and some of them are a little bit of catharsis, you know? There was one where I did talk about, like, competition, ripping you off, and this quote of, like, I've had... Friends, quaint friend acquaintances, you know, look me in the eye as they're I'm like, hey, you're kind of building the exact same thing. I'm yeah, you know, there's room enough for all of us in this space that it's that I've heard that thing three times. And it's like, what the fuck are you doing, man? This sucks. Why? Why are you acting like we're friends? Cause you're screwing me here. You know, it's that's, that's I so frustrating. That
0: I listened to that episode and I, I, I know who you're talking about as well. I'm almost. Yeah. Certain. Oh man, Okay. Um, Rob, that was actually helpful with, um, with the mindset stuff. I know a lot of people will be hearing that. And I have a lot of people who listen to this podcast who I know have been struggling with this stuff. That will be really useful for them to hear. Um, what's the, what's the difference between companies that peak at hundred K MRR and companies that push forward to that one mil um, MRR.
1: Hmm, that's a really good question. It's usually going to be well. There, so there's a few reasons why you might peak um, and plateau, in essence, one is the entire market might just be that big, you know, we have a we have a company right now who is called Senior Place, and they are um, software for Senior placement agents, which are folks you would call if you had an elderly parent and you wanted to get them into you know assisted living or nursing care, and they're they're kind of like realtors almost. They like will they have all the info about all the senior placement uh, facilities, and then they kind of guide you through the process of picking the best one and matching you up and this and that. And there, it's software for them. There are only I forget the number, but it's like there are six thousand of them in the U.S. or ten thousand. It's just a very small market, and so. They know that they are going to at their current pricing, even if they capture 80% of the market, like they peak at a couple million. So they're already thinking we need some, we need a higher price point, or, you know, additional tier, or we need uh, add-ons. Do we need a, a complementary product? Do we need, you know, they're looking at how to uh, expand that. So that could be one way. The other way, which is much more common is that people aren't, <laughs> a lot of people don't know what's working. I'm growing. I don't know Why? I can't attribute this to anything. I mean, literally, I I know folks running 100 grand a month businesses who kind of don't really understand why they're getting there and they they plateau and then you can't fix it. So that's another one that I encourage people to at least know as much as you can about what's happening. And another one is um, just that, you know, whatever it is, the, the existing traffic sources you have, you know, bringing in the same amount of trials each month and your churn is x percent and there's just a natural plateau there's a formula for figuring out when you're going to plateau and folks who don't get past that million don't figure out how to either widen that channel they have or adding additional marketing channels because you just need at a certain point you need more leads churn yes is the death of SaaS, right unless you have net negative which a lot of businesses don't You'll plateau. So I think that the founders who who do get to the you know million a month are the ones who are constantly looking at it like wow. So we're going to plateau in nine months at the current. Everything's the same. Well, what do we add? Are we widening one of these channels, or are we adding you know additional channels, or improving our church? You know, there's all it's all just numbers, right? It's math at that point, and it's thinking through um, how to do it.
0: I like that. We uh, we've when we first back in the early days. We Paul's, um, Paul had a huge newsletter, right? And there was people coming from there, and we said that we can't rely on this for Fathom to grow. We need to actually develop channels out. And then, so we focused on the channels. And even ones that you don't necessarily know how well they're going to do, we just started a new channel. Oh, okay. And we're suddenly seeing all these sign-ups from this channel. And it literally took maybe a couple hours of work, and we'd never hmm. even thought about doing it. And suddenly we're seeing all these new trials coming in, saying they're coming from this. And, and it just shows that... Um, it's, it's the development of channels and the, and you say the increase of the leads is where you grow your business. So someone plateauing on that would, would definitely stop it.
1: That's awesome. Good. Congratulations. Because normally it's a lot more work to find a new Channel. So to spend hours and have more more folks coming in is awesome. And just so folks know, when we're, we're saying channel, which is this very abstract thing, SEO is a channel, cold email outreach is a channel, integrations that you co-promote is a channel, you know, running ads is a channel, right? There's And there's, with B2B SaaS specifically, there's maybe 20 channels total. There aren't that many, you know, there's 20 viable ones. Um, people can buy the book Traction by Gabriel Weinberg if they kind of want a mostly complete list. I think I have like four now that are not, you know, because the book starting to get data, right? Six, seven years old. I think there's like four that people are using that aren't in there. And a big thing about channels, uh, I won't go off on too long of a tangent, but is if you have a low price point, there's only like three or four channels you can, you can use because you can't mm. do paid ads if you're charging 10 bucks a month because ads are too expensive. If you're, if you're um, charging you know, 100 or $200 a month, suddenly you could, there's like eight channels, nine channels you can use. If you're charging 1000 or 2000 a month, y- you can do any channel. You can do in-person events. You could literally pay for billboards. So that's a second order effect a lot of people don't think about with pricing. Most people think, oh, if I raise my prices, I make more money. It's like, yes, and you can now take on more channels. You, know, you, can fee- you have a feasible buffet, <laughs> a menu of more channels that, you could, that could possibly work for you.
0: Yeah, no, that's interesting. I have a, a kind of a odd mindset on advertising. So for me, any advertising is isn't about the conversion as such. It's just about awareness. So that if someone mentions a brand to this person, they're aware of it, and you kind of can target these smaller groups so that that group becomes aware of it. So I do I do see adverts a little bit differently. But I just thinking your point about you have to spend a bunch of money, you need to recoup it somehow. It, it's much harder on a lower price plan. And that's, that's absolutely true. It's something to think about for me as well, you saying that. A,
1: Especially if point. you're bootstrapping, you know.
0: Yeah, no, that's a good point. Um, I'm operating on a theory right now and I'm kind of eager to write an article. And when I was in my late teens, I was listening to Mixergy and they would talk about uh, survivorship bias. And it was, you know, um, survivorship bias, you're just listening to the people who have succeeded telling the story you're not hearing about everyone else. And I always said to myself, that's not going to happen to me. I'm I'm not going to fail. I'm going to succeed because I won't stop until I succeed. So this whole survivorship bias thing is just irrelevant. And that's what I did. And I spoke to a couple entrepreneurs as well and I think Ruben Gomez was one of them. And these are entrepreneurs that once they got the base knowledge, they haven't failed. And so I look at someone like you who has a fund that helps people, mentors people and has been successful in business before. If you, start, you could start a business tomorrow, do you think you could grow it to 100k MRR or 50k MRR based on the knowledge you have about running a SaaS business and growing it? Yes. That, this is what I mean. Okay, so my theory <laughs> is that once you have the knowledge to be able to do things, because it's not just like, yes, there's luck, but you have to know the things to try and to fail at them and then try something else, right? And just yep. the fact that you're coming back with that, you've done multiple businesses. What do you think about survivorship bias? in regards well, to SaaS products?
1: So I think success is three things. Hard work, luck, and skill. Hmm. I think it's a combination of those. And sometimes I, I have a friend who I won't name who sold a company for $20 million. And he says, I got so lucky, so lucky. He, he didn't work that hard. He had some skills, but he got really lucky, right place at the right time. And then there are other folks who they make, you know, they don't really have, they, they don't need luck because they kind of put in a ton, a ton of time. They work hard for years and years and they grind it out and they build up the skills, which is what you were talking about. You were talking about having the knowledge to do it. I'm saying that's skill. Um, So, I think there's another aspect of it too. It's confidence, right? (laughs) It's the confidence that you said you just were going to grind it out. You're like, I'm going to do it until I succeed. And you did. And now you have the confidence that I bet if you started another company, it would go very well because you kind of know, you, you have the the knowledge, the skill, but I think you also have the confidence that it'll go well. And that I think is more valuable than a lot of people think.
0: Yeah. I mean, we've I got hundreds it, of ideas.
1: Yeah. I mean, <laughs> survivorship bias for sure is a thing. Yes. it. it I mean, it is, right? It, it's a real thing. Absolutely. Um, I think that's why it's I think it's helpful to hear stories of founders who have failed 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 and then succeeded because then you can figure out what did what went wrong with those earlier ones because you're basically this you're the same person with maybe a little more skill you know or a little more experience by the time you get to the third one why did the first two fail did they fail because the market was bad did they fail because you made bad decisions that you now in retrospect realize oh i made the right decision with the the next one Mm-hmm. Um. yeah I don't know what, what else is there <laughs> I don't know if I've other the thoughts on it
2: you know I think it's I, as well because I see a lot of people who work really hard and they grind it out they work harder than I do to be mm-hmm. honest and they don't get anywhere right mm-hmm. and so I think a lot of times and I always mm-hmm. think about this I'm like well, why are they not doing well and, mm-hmm. uh, and other people who maybe work less like it's not just the hard I think a lot of it comes down to what you're working hard on like I see a lot of people work really hard at the wrong things, and they're like, well yeah. I'm working hard and it's like well you didn't you didn't prove out the market at all you didn't like there's there's like, oh, I'm the only person in this market it's like yeah, because the market doesn't exist <laughs> yeah
1: I think you right so I think the idea that you're working on is important, right you can just pick a crappy idea <laughs> there are also folks who they they're, they're great people, but they just get in their own damn way over and over. They almost self-sabotage in a way that you'll watch them and it's like, they'll take advice from a bunch of experienced founders and they're like, I'm trying to decide between A, B, and C and everyone says C and then they go do A. And you're like, well, why'd you do that? And I it's like, well, cause that's what I, I, I feel like that's right. And it's like that, no, that's probably the wrong thing. You know, F- folks who I see succeeding, they, they, have a bias towards action, meaning they have an idea today and it is implemented in three days. It's like, I'm going to write a bunch of articles for SEO. I'm going to go do those. The people who I see maybe not have that same idea. And then they go out and they interview some contractors to do it. They hire some writer. Three months later, that same thing is done. Like it's And it's not that you have to be crazy. Look, I I work... My whole career, I worked about 40 hours a week, maybe a little less. So, it's not. I'm not saying work 80-hour weeks. I'm saying bias towards action, getting stuff done quickly. And then the other thing is working on the right things, which, mm-hmm. you know, Paul, like you just said, maybe it's the idea is the right or wrong thing. But even within an idea, like, oh, I have a great idea. I'm going to build an ESP, you know, another email service provider. <laughs> Um, Don't do that, by the way. But it's like, even within that, it's like, okay, so what are we going to work on today? Are we going to build this feature or that feature? Are we going to try this marketing approach or that marketing approach? Am I going to hire someone to do it? Am I going to do it myself? All of those micro decisions, some people just make a lot, their gut is off, and they make a lot of the wrong decisions. And I think you can learn to switch that gut if you're coachable coachability is a thing that I think a lot of successful entrepreneurs have. And that just means not only taking input from you know other successful founders, taking in books and actually internalizing it. I read a ton of books. I think I have 758 books in our Audible account, for example. And I've listened to all the ones that aren't kid kid or my wife's books. I mean, we share an account. But it's like the founders I know, they listen to a lot of books and they internalize that, you know, and they actually use it. They don't just let it gloss off. So, those are kind of those are four different things, but it's like we you know the idea you're working on, working on the right things, um, coachability, and uh, you know the ability to to put in work and and buy source action.
2: And coachability is a huge thing, even for Jack and I. Like we will stick to our guns until we're proven wrong, and then it's 100 percent okay that we are wrong, and then yep. we move forward in an exact opposite direction. Yep, and it's that's ex- how we run our. That's how we've always run our business.
1: <laughs> yeah, and it, so it, someone used to call it. Um, I think it's Scott Hanselman. He says strong opinion. I have strong opinions loosely held where it's like, I'm really, I really believe this, but you can totally convince me that this is not the right thing. If you, if you care more or if you, you know, just have better logic. It's so weird that like changing your mind Is seen as a bad thing like in politics right it's like he's a flip-flopper you know this and that or no changing your mind to me is growth mindset that just shows that i'm willing to actually do what's the smart thing and not what i believe is some dogma you know and and that coachability implies flexibility and i i always come to i come to team meetings and i'm like look here's my idea please tell me why it's wrong because i want to know what the i want to i want to go with the best idea not the idea from the, the boss, you know? And I, I get that. I mean, you guys are the same way. We're, I'm preaching to the choir here, but... No, for
0: sure. Hey, I have a question as well, because I know you don't do this. Why Why don't you think sharing MRR is, is the right thing to do? Because we don't share our MRR. It's not something that you're a big fan of. What's the logic behind that?
1: Yeah. There, there's a couple things. One is it definitely invites It can invite competition. And I have talked to, I mean, I talked to Josh Pigford about, uh, you mm-hmm. know, founder of Bear metrics on Startups The Rest of Us. And I asked him, do you think it invited competition? And he said, absolutely. And I said, would you do it again? And he said, I don't know. It was really helpful in the early days. Right. Yeah. So I don't love that it invites competition. I mean, it comes back to the, I don't like being copied either. And I, I do think that, you know, it, it invites a little bit of that. The other thing, which is more of a philosophical thing? Is I feel like most people who do it, it's just as very. It's either very braggy, very look at me, or it is purely marketing, and they're not. They're not owning up to it. It's like, I want to get back to the community, and I want to, you know, it's this, I'm this really nice person, and I'm going to inspire, but it's like, no, you just want to point out how great you are, and you are not willing to say, look, it's just fucking marketing, guys. You know, just please, can you just be honest with us? So, that's my, that's a philosophical take. I'm not saying everyone has to agree with that, but um, Uh, I uh, I, (laughs) think. to am a little opinionated on it however but look i i would do just in time reveals of drips mrr like i would do a microconf talk mm. i would ask people not to tweet the mrr and i would say to, almost to illustrate the point of how this is working here's our mrr graph to date please don't tweet this this video comes out six months from now so i know like the broader world's not going to know about it um so i didn't feel like it would necessarily invite you know it was like and then i wouldn't but then it wasn't a running tally you know it wasn't every month here's our mrr or any, anything like that
0: we share our MRR because we're being transparent okay well also show me your expenses show me how many hours you're working show me you know how how much show me your divorce papers show me everything
1: it's not transparency right there's very few that are like Rand, Rand Fishkin is transparent because he genuinely is transparent like he's one of those folks that when I hear him talk I'm like this guy like I have a lot of respect for him a lot of other times when I hear transparency it's exactly what you're saying it's like oh this feels a little icky
0: it is. It's marketing. No, I completely agree. So that was definitely, definitely funny to hear. So what's uh, what's next for you over the next 10 years? Are you just focused in on Tiny Seed and that's what you're going to do? You're going to help founders for the rest of your career. Is that the plan?
1: Yeah. And it's exactly uh, what I realized a few years ago is that kind of my mission in life and became my legacy um, or is becoming my legacy of, I want there to be more sustainable, self-sustaining businesses, startups in the world, you know? And I'm currently focused on SaaS. I don't know that it'll be like that forever, but that's what my, you know, I have a couple hundred essays uh, that I wrote at robwelling.com. That was from like 2006 to 2012. Then there was a, you know, I've written three books on startups. I have um, started MicroConf, which I still run, Tiny Seed, which I run, and Startups for the Rest of Us is 11 years, 600 episodes. If you look at the, what's the, what's the guiding principle of all, it's all the same thing. It's like helping founders get there faster. Sometimes it's, hey, here's a book to do it. Sometimes it's, here's a bunch of free podcast episodes to maybe inspire you or maybe give you tactics. Uh, it, sometimes it's in-person event because the community, you know, the community is really valuable, for you to make friends, mastermind matching, all that stuff. And Tiny Seed is like, well, if you decide that the the funding model, you know, is something you want to do, then now we have a way to give, give you money. But it's all the same mission. It's to just multiply the number of self-sustaining startups in the world. So that's it for me. I mean, I I'm a little older than I look. I think, but I don't know how many more years. <laughs> I don't know how many more years um, I have, but at least a decade, maybe twenty of of working on this stuff. But it's because I love it. I don't want to do anything else. You know, I sold sold drip, and I took six months and said, Do I do I want to work again? I was in my early forties, and it was like, Well, of course I want to work again. But what do I want to work on? And I almost bought the second largest board game uh, uh, table, not board game tables, second largest tabletop gaming website in the world. I started talking to the guy about doing that because I love tabletop games. And I got a few months in and I thought, you know what? I'm giving up on this on years, like a de- more than a decade of this other mission. Why am I walking away from it? And I had, uh, there was a lot of soul searching in that time. And when I came out of it, it the decision was, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. I just don't, I don't, know anything else that i want to do you know that's it feels very important to me and it's also very rewarding and i love it and
0: I i have one final question for me anyway um you have kids I've got a kid as well, and I'm very much in tune with how I want to teach her to view the world with regards to uh, value in society. So not just filling a job, but providing value, because, you know, I grew up, it was all about the job, but I uh, transitioned into, oh, it's value, you know, we're in a capitalist society, it's value, value, value. Do you do anything in particular with your kids to encourage them to be entrepreneurial or or Hmm. view the world differently to just filling in a job? And I know that some people were fine with doing that, I'm I'm not slacking it off, but I'm curious if you do anything with your kids.
1: Yeah, we have. Um, we've wanted to instill just the possibility that if they want to be entrepreneurs, that it's totally possible, you know? And so early on, they would say, you know, I want to buy a Lego set. And we say, well, we do have allowance for chores for contributing, but it's not very much. And if you want more than that, let's let me give you some ideas. You could, you know, it's around Christmas time. There's mistletoe in the trees. You can get on the ladder, cut it, and then you could sell it to people. Or you could write a book, you know? He let's talk that. about what you might want to write about. And one kid said I want to write a book about Minecraft. And I said, "Who are you going to sell it to?" Cuz like other kids aren't going to buy it. And I said, "What if you wrote and we were just brainstorming. You know who might want to learn about Minecraft? is parents, and they have money. So what if you wrote a parents guide to Minecraft?" And he's like, mm-hmm. "I'm totally going to do it." He was 8. <laughs> and uh and he did, and he sold it for 10 bucks a piece. I think he sold like $300 worth over the course of a year, and he went door to door. And he talked to friends. yeah, he printed it on Amazon's Create Space thing, you know. It's an eight and a half by eleven uh, you know, book. I think if you go to Finn's there's like a link to it there. It's my he's 15 now, but he was eight at the time. And um they I think they got a lot of uh hopefully some inspiration from that. And I don't know if they'll be entrepreneurs, but I certainly don't want the them to feel like they have to go down the script, you know, that that I did, which is go to college and then get a day job that you don't like and then do that until your angst takes you over and you are forced to <laughs> become an entrepreneur i want them to do it early if they're going to do it
0: so coming soon a tiny seed for kids
1: that's right <laughs> <laughs> oh man i would love to it would be fun it would be fun yeah. to, to mentor kids you know
0: rob you're a legend i definitely appreciate today's call it was very fun as well as informative
1: so thank you it was awesome i appreciate you and guys how, having uh, me on
0: how can people find you well, this is a stupid question. Everyone knows who you are. So it's no, such a that's not true.
1: Question. Stop saying it. It makes me feel weird when you say that um, <laughs> oh, I, when I'm at, no, it's fine. When I'm at microcomps, I introduce myself to people and they're like, what are you doing? I'm like, yeah, I'm Rob. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yes, I know. Right. who you're, You know, it's like, yeah, all right. But it's a, it's a weird thing. Um, people can find me uh, if they listen to podcasts, startups for the rest of us. Episode 591 comes out next week and at Rob Walling on Twitter. Those are probably the two best places. Cool. Well, thanks very much. Absolutely.